The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Paul Hewlich. He's author of Stress Pandemic. Pandemic, Nine Natural Steps to Survive, Master, Stress, and Live Well. And he shares his secrets to help others conquer their own stress. Welcome to the show, Paul. Good morning. Well, good morning. Uh, Apparently, and I just want to give a little background on you, you started uh, before even Whole Foods brought healthy food to us here in America, and you're from New Zealand. You co-founded an organic food company, uh, far ahead of your time, chairman and CEO of Vest Corporation, you were, and uh, and then had a complete mental breakdown, which you say was brought on by spread, uh, stress. Uh, your company was worth over $100 million. You were 45 years old, but apparently the stress and the burden of your success led to this nervous breakdown, and you lost everything. Um, what happened? Well, um, I had some, well, I bought into the Hollywood dream, and that is to work hard and uh, make a success of my life so I could have all my choices and options. So I worked very hard. And as you said, um, Catherine, around about the age of 40, I thought I had the perfect life. But due to stress and making poor lifestyle choices, um, yes, I experienced the um, uh, the um, most severe uh, uh, challenges in my life, all due to stress, and it just started with the symptoms of stress. I just had grinding of the teeth, and I had insomnia, and later I developed a little bit of a dull feeling in my tummy, and because I was health conscious, I did reach out for help, and uh, I had a team of uh, professional experts around me to um, keep me healthy and strong, but due to the stress response, um, which was overactivated, which can happen to a lot of us, I developed initially anxiety, a mild depression, which developed later, even when I was on medication, to severe depression, and then had uh, mood swings, and eventually became a runaway train and had a complete mental breakdown, lost my rights, made a ward of the state, my Credit cards were confiscated. My bank accounts were frozen. And you don't want that to happen to you, all because of stress. Well, I mean, it sounds like a, a, a horrific story. Here you are at the top of your game, and then as you see, you went right down the tube. But you, let, let's, can we backtrack a little? Because, I mean, we're all subject to stress every day, and this, not necessarily do we start you know, at the top and then end up at the bottom. But you were in business with your two brothers, 
um, as I understand it, the three of you, some of the most successful business people in 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 New Zealand. Um, so, and, and you describe your kind of downfall, your emotional downfall, as happening gradually. Why couldn't it be? You know, you were aware of what was happening to you. I assume um, it's was this a biochemical thing or what? You know, why couldn't it be stopped, I guess is what I'm saying. Why did you have to reach rock bottom? Um, it actually happens to a lot of us. Um, maybe we don't reach rock bottom, but because the drugs were on, um, at times um, people don't eventually have a mental breakdown. But it's all to do with the trigger, um, the stress response, which is the trigger effect of when your um, brain and body is out of balance and goes into a fight or flight reaction when you feel threatened and challenged. And my stress response was turned on like a tap um, and it was going full pout. And what happens then is your neurochemistry changes and the five neurochemicals that were changing were serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine and endorphins. And while that was happening, of course, the very challenging stress uh, hormone was activated, um, cortisol. And when that happens, um, we start to get more anxious. We start to get more stressed. We start to, the whole body and the brain and everything changes on the cellular level. Your heart rate, you know, your pulse, everything. So what was happening to me is happening to a lot of people. Um, but when you lean on some destructive coping mechanisms, which I call leaning on your crutches when you feel most stressed and vulnerable, that's what takes you down. And I was into crap in a big way. That's caffeine, refined sugar, alcohol and processed foods. And I wasn't aware that if you've got a weight issue, which I did, I, I had a bit of a pop belly and a lot of um, excess weight around my waist, that it's actually connected to you having an addiction and also developing a mind condition. And just think of it, a lot of us out there have, have, have insomnia, but we take a sleeping tablet because there's no pain when you're asleep. So, but you came to the United States, apparently, uh, as I understand it, and you were taking medications, went to the Mayo Clinic, the Menninger Clinic, um, and what this, the medications didn't help this condition because you were, as you say, you were eating the wrong things, you were what you eating sugar and white flour and all those kinds of things. So you kind of took a different approach, hence your book, obviously. There are other things to do to alleviate the stress besides these medications. Yes, I um, I stayed on the medication till I got a, a complete full bill of health that I'm okay from my professional medical team. But while I was on the medication, I decided to be more proactive because uh, the doctor said there's no cure for my severe condition or due to um, stress. So I thought, well... Since I've been a pioneer of organic foods, I'm going to start with nutrition. And, of course, I moved into uh, not only nutrition but exercise and started talking to people not just here in the United States but globally 
to find out more about the neurochemistry, those five neurochemicals that I mentioned, you know, they make up the person you are with your thoughts, feelings, emotions and moods. And a lot of the drug companies develop medication around those five neurochemicals. So when I started doing that and started implementing um, the five natural steps, um, I noticed that um, um, actually... um, um, nature had the power to heal you if you just gave it a chance. So I started to feel better as time went on and um, started discussing it with my family and the doctors and they're in amazement. And um, within two years, I came off all medication, had no symptoms of stress anymore. And that's over 15 years ago now. And I've never had a relapse. I have no symptoms of stress. I take no medication, and I've never felt better or stronger. Well, it's interesting because in your book, Survived the the, the Book of the Stress Pandemic and the Nine Natural Steps to Take, which obviously you say for the past, what, 15 years you've been doing, um, they seem like, and we can go through them, but things that one would do naturally, um, what, like taking charge, kick your bad habits, affirmations, exercise, nutrition, but what makes you, and all of us or many of us try to do that to relieve stress. Well, I'm in the social work business, so obviously I recommend that to my patients and, and to myself. But uh, what makes your your recommendation, your nine natural steps, different than anybody else's? Because you see a lot of these in other books, but is there some, this combination this of nine things make it different in terms of, of well, like, I would say your miraculous recovery? Um, yes. What has happened is um, a lot of people don't realise how everything's interrelated to do with the neurochemistry. If you want to overcome a problem like stress, you need to understand the characteristics of it. So first of all, part of the book explains that all to you. And then it explains that if you have an awareness of your lifestyle, take nutrition. A lot of people wouldn't be aware that you've got a second brain. It's right down in your gut and your small intestine. That's where 95% of your serotonin receptors are. So if you eat more good mood foods as opposed to crap, which I call caffeine, refined sugar, alcohol, and processed foods, you're definitely going to feel a lot better. Same with dopamine. People don't realize most of us get a dopamine hijack. Dopamine is your neurochemical, is a neurochemical that stimulates the reward pleasure center. And what we are doing most of the time is stimulating it with things that make us feel good for the moment, but they're addictive, whether it's crap or some other substance. And as time goes on, we find it hard to break that cycle. So another one is um, exercise. People don't realise that you need to get out in the urban gym early. It's very good for um, for vitamin D, in which a lot of us lack and also for earthing, but there's 7,200 nerve enzymes in your feet that are connected to every part of the brain and the body. And when you go out, you need to do a brisk walk, breathing in and out, doing your central pattern generator movement, which is like marching. And when you do that, you get the maximum exercise. Another thing is about sleep. People don't realise that if you have um, um, start doing exercise at night or having arguments or working at night, you're activating your stress hormone 
um, cortisol a lot and you won't sleep well and also activating your serotonin too much and it can't become melatonin. So you end up waking up in the middle of the night. I could go on and on, but we can only got time for um, the tip of the iceberg, as you would say. Well, sleep is, as I understand it, is really one of the number one, um, I guess one of the number one paths to health, sleep. And I know in Americans, um, it's kind of, uh, we're, we don't sleep enough. That's a major problem. That Even though people, as you say, you need to sleep well and you need to eat well so you'll sleep well and you need to exercise. But uh, Americans are not sleeping well and they're not getting enough sleep. Um, and that's a major problem. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how to, even when they are aware that they need the sleep, we don't get it. So what? I don't know if you have the answer to it, but if we want to follow these nine you know, stress relievers that you talk about in your book, um, how, you know, we, we are so wound up in terms of our jobs and responsibilities and, how, you know, it's a huge problem here. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how we can overcome that so we do get enough sleep so that we are healthy. Well, um, you can. These steps are, have been um, developed for people on the go and they don't take a lot of time. And you don't have to even do them every day. They are small practical steps, but ones that can help make a huge difference. For example, you just said about sleep. Yes, that's the only time that the body and the mind can heal. And you do need your sleep. So you need to have an awareness of your lifestyle. It's all about your lifestyle and having awareness that stress causes us to make poor lifestyle choices. And poor lifestyle choices cause stress. It's a perpetual cycle. So if your bedroom is a, is a place where you have arguments or it's not dark enough or, as you say, um, you're, you're, you're um, having um, important meetings at night or you're doing things that you're not relaxing enough, of course you're going to wake up in the middle of the night. And when you take a sleeping tablet or any sleeping aid, um, you're just breaking the cycle where the body and the mind's trying to tell you something and you're not listening. And that's what happened to me. I had problems sleeping because of my circadian rhythm, lots of travel, um, due to me eating the wrong foods and um, alcohol, of course. And um, you just need to look at some of the very successful people that started out with a passion for life and brought us a lot of pressure, like Elvis. He had um, everything, power, fame, fortune. But what, 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 what made his life short? It was all to do with his destructive coping mechanisms, whether it was junk food, drugs, or alcohol, or whatever. Same with someone like Karen Carpenter, who is an amazing singer. Think of Michael Jackson, or even recently Whitney Houston. All people very successful, um, but no financial issues. Why was their life shortened, all due to stress? Well, those are great examples. I mean, most of us don't even fit in, as you know, into those categories of success and making money and being out there with the public. But uh, you're absolutely right, and that's what unfortunately brought them down. Uh, so let's talk about you. You said for the past 15 years you've been fine. I mean, you haven't been stress-free. No one is, but it's how you've handled your stress as you've described it. 
So now, where has it led to? Like financially, well, you've written this book. I mean, um, are you still in business with your brothers? Who you, the three of you co-founded the Best Corporation. Uh, so, how is you know living this kind of a lifestyle, healthy lifestyle? How has that impacted on your life? What are you doing? Well, at the moment, um, yes, I wrote stress pandemic on the granite rock in New York City, and I've been living there for the last three and a half years. I'm still involved in business. Um, I'm very active. I was up at 5.45 this morning out in the urban gym here in Los Angeles, and I do stress seminars and helping people on the front lines of um, helping people to have an awareness of their lifestyle and that they can fight back. They are not alone, they're worth it, and that they should have hope and never give up. So, yes, I have a great life, and it is true. Yeah, I might have lost a fortune, but I've gained, I've actually gained a wonderful insight into life where my goals and ambitions merge more with contentment. When I was very successful, um, I reckon my goals and ambitions were reaching for the sky, and my contentment was down on the ground. And I only had fleeting moments of happiness. And that's what you've got to look around with your own lifestyle. Just look at the way you feel about life. Because the symptoms of stress are your uh, warning signs. It's your barometer to your um, level of wellness. So if you've got any of the symptoms like anxiety, depression, or feeling overwhelmed, or having headaches, hyperventilating, or panic attacks, anger, anything, fatigue, grinding of the teeth, allergies, um, you know, in time you could develop obesity, and you could end up with one of the big four that happened to me, cancer, heart disease, stroke, or a serious mind condition. So it's all about prevention. Prevention's the key. Don't allow your stress to control you. This yeah, is well, all I think about prevention, you. I think that's a big word, what you say, prevention, because I think that well, Western medicine really, even though we say it, and maybe this is why it's important to read your book, we talk about prevention, but we're not, the medicals, our medical system really doesn't center around prevention. It's after the fact. It's after you get cancer or heart disease or, or have a mental breakdown uh, or, or that you're obese. Then, then, you know, then we start to work on the problem rather than attack the, the problem before it starts, like you say, prevention. But what about your relationships? Because you said, okay, maybe I'm not making as much money. I'm not the head or the CEO of this big corporation, but I'm much happier. I'm more content. I'm healthier. How are your relationships? How does it affect your intimate relationships with people? Well, actually, I reckon my relationships are a lot better than ever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll have to admit, my marriage didn't survive what happened. Um, We were married for nearly 24 years. Um, when we got when we got divorced, um, and we got divorced about a year to eighteen months, about a year I think it was after I had my complete mental breakdown. But my former wife and I um, are very good friends, and we're in both um, relationships, and we're very happy, and we were very blessed with three wonderful boys, and I'm a grandfather. I've got three grandchildren. And I'm 60 years of age, and my health now is better 
than when I was in my 30s and 40s, and uh, all due to me fighting back. It's about mastering stress, not coping with it. And what's the point of a Band-Aid? Like, a lot of us take medication, but if your symptoms of stress are not abating, you know, going away, don't you think you need to be a bit proactive? I, yes, and I think proactive may include, and I'm going to ask you this, what do you do? You have grandchildren, so they're, I assume they're fairly young, so how are you helping them to not get into the situation, let's say, that you got into? Are they, do they listen to you? Are they aware of, of what you're talking? Have they read your book? Well, um, as you say, my um, oldest grandson, he's only five, but um, his younger brother, who's um, I'm turning four in August, gets up each morning with his dad, and I'm so pleased. All my three sons are conscious about health. They adopted my sort of um, um, wisdom and experience of life because they don't want to go where I'd be, and they don't want their children either. And my former wife has too, so all of them do juice. All of them have got an understanding about everything to do with the stress pandemic and the lifestyle solution. So what do you do, Paul? What do you do when you get tempted? I mean, because uh, you know your nine steps. And I mentioned them again: taking charge, kick your bad habits, learn to say no, affirmations, exercise, nutrition, sleep, the power of awareness, and don't give up. We need to do all of those things. But before that, you were drinking too much and eating too much of the wrong stuff. And you all get tempted again. You go out, you go to a party. I mean, what do you do? How do you kind of like say no to the stuff that's bad for you? How do you do it personally? Well, the book actually helps you do that. What happens is, first of all, you have an awareness that you have to break the cycle. And it's a 30-day cycle where you have zero tolerance that you haven't done anything wrong. So I had a huge addiction to alcohol and crap. And, of course, friends and socializing. It was very hard to break the cycle, but I started doing my wins and losses and starting to think of the child who's learning to walk. You always fall over, but you never give up. You keep picking yourself up again. And eventually I broke the cycle where I went for 30 days without doing any of the crap. And to this day, I still drink alcohol. I still have a bit of crap. But I have an awareness of moderation, and it's never controlled me again. So, yes, at times people are always tempting me, and, of course, when you go to, I love my food, and I go to restaurants, and they say, well, you're going to have a dessert, Mr. Shulich? And I say, oh, not today. I'm fine. Would you like a glass of wine? Not today. But, of course, I drink alcohol. Um, But it doesn't control me anymore. I haven't had to keep away from the crap completely because I still want to experience it, but I don't want it controlling me, and that's the difference. I understand the neurochemistry of mastered stress because I realize that if I'm under stress and I've got any symptoms of stress, what am I reaching for? And that's when you have this awareness of your lifestyle. Awareness. I think and we should say this again and again because you're so right. You have to be aware. And I think that, you know, it reminds me of, of some of the uh, mindful meditation uh, things where they tell you to be mindful, and maybe this is another way of saying it, be aware. Be aware of what you're eating. Be aware of what you're drinking. 
uh, be conscious of it, not just do stuff and, and uh, kind of like uh, spontaneously without thinking about it, because I'm thinking I, I try to do the same thing you do in a restaurant. You know, I, I don't need another glass of wine or no, I don't yeah. want the bread. You can not bring it to the yeah. table. <laughs> I want it, but well, I'm not going to have it, yeah. <laughs> well, what happens is um, also your cortisol is highest in the morning and lowest in the evening. So if you have an awareness also that any arguments or anything that um, you should be, um, be challenged with, try and do it in the morning. Don't activate your uh, serotonin that you start to eat and you're doing exercise in the evenings because you will wake up during the night. So this awareness of your lifestyle, that's where it starts to make sense and saying, wow, I understand what stress is all about. And the stress pandemic spells out the problem and then it gives you a lifesaver. You can throw yourself a lifesaver and say, hey, I've got the solution here. These steps, which is all about nature, can heal the most serious conditions because my condition, I was told by the head of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and many other psychiatrists and leading doctors that there's no cure, and I'm sorry, Mr. Hewlett, you'll never be the same. Well, I'm not only the same, I'm a lot better. So tell me, what was the, I think we mentioned it in the beginning, but what was your actual diagnosis at when you had your nervous, when you had your breakdown? Because that's kind of like a layman's term, but the, the medical term was what? Uh, uh, All right, the, well, it was the most, it's the end of the road. It's the end of the road for anyone who suffers from stress. It was bipolar 1. They call it bipolar 1 today. And that is where the neurochemistry is so out of balance that you lose total control of your mind and your body and leading up to my mental breakdown you don't want to do what I was doing I was stripping off to my underpants and boardrooms giving out $100 bills at the local gas station jumping off walls thinking I could fly only to the terrifying um, shock of my family um, seeing my bloody feet when I came back into the home You don't want to be doing these things. And many things I did on the day I lost my mind, I can't remember to this day. And you don't want to go there. You don't want to become a runaway train. Because by the time you realize where your tipping point is, it's too late. It's already happened. You've lost control. It's like walking into quicksand. So why go there? Don't you think it's wise to just say, well, if I've got some symptoms of stress, I'm going to be proactive. Well, I'm you going to are, do something you are about a hope for, for uh, any of our listeners because you really, as you've described it in the end, you really were, you had hit rock bottom. Well, we have to say goodbye, but Paul Hewlett, uh, his book is Stress Pandemic, Nine Natural Steps to Survive, Master Stress, and Live Well, and you've certainly done that. And thanks so much for, for sharing all this today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to reach out to all you listeners and thank you to be on your show, Catherine. We are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and coming up next is Daniel Bergner. He's author of What Do Women Want? Uh, You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. 
be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me now is author and New York Times magazine writer Daniel Bergner. His new book is What Do Women Want? Inventures in the Science of Female Desire. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Well, it's great to talk to you. Great topic. Um, and one of the things I guess that's been written about your book, it says your book is going to change the conversation about women and sex. So my first question is, how, you, how, how is it going to do it, or how are you going to do it? Well, by taking some assumptions that we've long held and turning them upside down, so I'll, just, I'll start with one. We've long been told that while men are programmed by evolution to spread their seed, to be promiscuous, Women are much more driven to seek out one good man and so are supposed to be, when it comes to sex, pretty well suited to monogamy. Science is telling us something very different. Uh, In fact, when it comes to sex, monogamy may be even more of a problem for women than for men. So that's just for starters. As I spent more and more time with scientists, most of them women and men, and I should say this is an important part of the book, listening to individual women telling their stories, I started to see that we as a society have kind of had our blinders on when it comes to women and desire. So we say that women, over how, you know, over, you know, it's interesting when I was reading your book and I saw you interviewed on a couple shows, um, and 
I guess one of the questions that I had was the reason for this. Is, I would, I'm assuming, that women supposedly don't want to have uh, or aren't as uh, that they crave closeness and commitment rather than uh, wanting to have sex like men do is really political, isn't it? So that kind of want we want to keep women in the house, uh, hearth and home, and raising the kids. So maybe that's why the myth has been perpetuated that we aren't as sexual or not the same kind of sexual beings that men are in terms of our aggressive behavior? Yeah, I think all of that is involved. Let me back up just half a step and say, you know, we are talking about sex. Of course, there are all kinds of reasons that all of us, me included, choose monogamous relationships and want trust and security and emotional closeness. Those are wonderful things. But when we're talking about the erotic Yes, I think there are political reasons why we've perpetuated this myth of that women are less sexually driven than men, women are less interested in variety than men. But, you know, most of all, I just kept coming up against the thought that this is such a convenient myth for men, such a comforting myth for me. I get to, you know, have society tell me it's just fine to have my thoughts and eyes roam a bit. And I get to live under the delusion, really, that uh, the woman I'm with is almost always focused on me. Well, of course, that's, you know, it's laughable once you put it that way. But for so long, we've been living with this myth. And I think it's really distorted our understanding of women and sexuality in a way that's kind of destructive, really. It's, it gets in the way of a candid conversation. And I hope that the book, when people put it down, will want to go out and have that kind of honest conversation. Well, how has it been destructive? Because I think that's really the point, you know, perpetuating this myth that women are not as sexual human beings as men are or don't have the same interests or the same drive. How is that destructive for men, for women, and for our relationship with each other? Yeah, and I'm glad you're framing it that way, because I think ultimately the real problem is in our relationships. It's a problem for men as well as women. But let me just give you two examples of stories I tell in the book, and then maybe we can circle back to some of the science. So uh, Isabel, 30-year-old woman, trying to decide whether to marry her very attractive, adoring boyfriend, but who she's lost a lot of desire for over the two years they've been together. And she kind of torments herself because she feels like this is something she shouldn't be facing as a woman. She's got this guy perfect on paper, and he's actually really sensitive in bed even, but she doesn't feel that desire. And, and of course, if you when you really look carefully, what Isabel's facing is quite normal. And would she know that? she might be able, have a lot easier time kind of thinking clearly about her decision. Another quick story. So Passy is a 58-year-old, very properly raised Southern woman, loves her husband mightily, but feels like something's missing in her sexual relationship. How to think about that? If she's thinking about it under the old assumptions that somehow monogamy is mostly just fine for women, and she's got a real burden placed on her, which, of course, gets in the way of thinking clearly. And then, if we turn to relationships, it gets in the way of just discussing things, honestly. So, you know, if you think about the male position, well, I'm going to feel threatened at first, for sure, hearing that the woman I'm with might not always be focused on me. But I guarantee you, and this is for the men out there, I guarantee you that 
when you take the lid off, allow for that conversation, encourage it, actually going to have more sexual energy within the relationship. And rather than feeling threatened, you're going to just feel like you're much more closely, both, both emotionally and sexually attached with your partner. So in other words, Daniel, you're saying it creates more intimacy. And I think you're right. I think in the beginning, if you, you, know, if you don't, you kind of want to not admit to it. So there's a lot more pressure for both male and female, the man and the woman, when they can't talk. And, you know, because you have all these, well, in social work terms, supposed to. I'm supposed to be satisfied after two years. But everybody gets bored with <laughs> after two years with whatever you're doing, even your job. <laughs> I, I love that phrase. The supposed to's really get in the way of the sexual. Yes, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about a, a couple. There's a great example in my book, Sophie and Paul, who have three kids, three young kids. They have three jobs between them. They've been married a decade. Everything should be kind of going downhill sexually if, if they were going according to script, but they are the exception. And I kept thinking, what is it about their story? How are they able to do this? And I finally just realized they're, they're one, they're really candid with each other. They're open in the way they discuss things. He's willing to listen instead of just feeling frightened and, and, Thus, she doesn't have to, like, always be protecting his fragile ego. And they're also, of course, willing to make sex a priority. And that sounds so simple, but it can be scary for couples because, of course, it can mean you can get hurt sometimes, you can fail sometimes. That's going to be part of it. But if you're willing to care in that way, it's, it can bring great things as it has for them. Making sex a priority, very difficult, I think, at least in American families, because kids become the priority, we're child-centered, and then sex takes second or third or even fourth turn, and then by that time, people are too tired to have sex if they've been focusing on the kids. But I just what what about creativity? Because you're talking about the difference, the myths created between men and women, and I, in my experience, because I have lots of girlfriends, and, and uh, I think women are allowed, and maybe after they read your book, will be, but creativity. If you're more creative about your, and, and have the freedom to be creative in bed or with your partner of two years or more, that, then it becomes more exciting. And I think sometimes, I, in my experience, men kind of are afraid of being creative in bed. I agree. <laughs> I think that one of the lessons for me, and this was an eight-year project for me, it was a lot of listening both to women and to scientists is that it seemed like male fear was kind of running the show in a way, but two interesting bits of, of science just for the moment. So Meredith Chivers is, is the first scientist I spent time with, and what she does is compare what women say turns them on to what their bodies say using a little device called the plethysmograph. And she showed women all kinds of erotic scenes. So straight women were watching straight scenes and gay scenes and you know, even famously scenes of Bonobos having sex and, and then, she, and uh, gay women were doing the same. And then she did the same with men. And one of the things that was so interesting, and I think that still fascinates her and me both is that, you know, the male, the male responses were very predictable, kind of boring, really. But the women's responses, although they said they were turned on the predictable, by the predictable things that is straight women were turned on by a, you know, heterosexual I've seen. Um, their bodies said something different. Their bodies were responding very quickly, immediately, strongly to a range of things. And it just 
gave a glimpse into like the female sexual sort of um, psyche is a fascinating place, a complex place, a very varied place, and can bring a lot, a lot, a lot of energy into the relationship. The other thing I just wanted to touch on was the Fifty Shades phenomenon. Now, maybe that's not the best written book in the world, but it sure caught on. Uh And I think one of the reasons is, and I get to sort of go into this a little bit toward the end of the book, is that it really kind of gives, like, it opens up the neural pathways of desire for the reader, for its readers, in a way that really strengthens our sexual brains in a way. And again, yeah, it's, um, it's an indication of just how much electricity can get charged if, if we don't let fear and social constraint get in the way. Yeah, well, those are the keys, right? Fear and social constraints. I want to get back to the, and I, pl- plasmograph, is that how you pronounce it? That's close enough. Plasmograph, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to pronounce, I'm not going to say it again. That's it. That's my last time. But anyway, so it's measuring female sexual responses. Well, give us examples of that, because you said, you, you, you kind of generally said that women say they're attracted to one thing, but actually when you measure their physical response to sexual uh, stimuli, it's different. For instance, yeah. So I'll give you one example that was that's kind of been a wake up call to my male friends. So I, so she takes on the one hand a very handsome stranger, and on the other an equally handsome and trusted close friend. And women say uh, what turns them on is their close friend. So they kind of speak according to our social scripts of intimacy, closeness leads to desire, but their bodies consistently say something very different. Their body's consistently more responsive to the stranger. So it's just one of many indications that, you know, came at me as I sort of made this eight-year journey that we're really, that we haven't been willing to see things uh, clearly, that we just haven't been willing to allow women's desire. It's, uh, you know, it's full, it's full range and it's full uh, force. It's, It's real electricity. You know, I was going to ask you what, I mean, you, this is eight years of studying all of this scientifically with sci- sexual um, habits of women and men, I guess, but of women, um, with scientists, with ordinary women. Um, were you surprised at any of this, or did you begin this project? Think, you know, of course, you had some kind of a idea in mind of what you were going to find, or were you shocked, or what were you shocked by the most in your research? You know, it's funny, like, I think often journalists begin a project at least partially knowing where they're going to end up. This was the rare project. I had no idea. I just knew this was going to be a fascinating journey, and I didn't know what I, how things were going to turn out and what I was going to say. And, you know, part of this eight years was a, a real sort of kind of secluding myself at the end to just pull it all, all together. Um, but no, when I began, I really wasn't reckoning, I think, and neither, I should say, was Meredith Chivers, that first scientist I mentioned, fully reckoning with how powerful social forces are in shaping the way we experience desire. And I think Meredith and I both sort of separately, but, but I kind of went along the same journey toward a more clear seeing of that. So 
Let me give you one other example of a really ingenious experiment. So in speed dating, uh, in general, men approach the women. So you might picture women sitting along a long banquette and men come along and, and have their quick dates. And then at the end, uh, everyone, men and women, check boxes. Do they want a second date? And, of course, men check many more boxes than women. And, and people have taken this as proof that, Again, the old story is true. Men are more promiscuous. Women want to settle down with one good man, etc. But what these two researchers did, which is so fascinating, is they flipped it around. They had the women approach the men, and they did this again and again. So their results were no fluke. And what do you know? All of a sudden, when they were approaching the men, the women checked just as many boxes wanting a second date. And, and then they rated desire and had just as high desire for those prospective dates. So suddenly we were seeing that the social structures that we take for granted, that men are the initiators, really do shape the way we experience something even so seemingly primal as desire. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and I think women do that really in all aspects of their lives. I mean, I've been out to dinner with a couple, both of them were physicians, very highly regarded, sitting at the table, and the woman will say to her husband, you know, order for me. And I was aghast. I mean, this is a woman who does surgery every day, and she's asking her husband, because that, she felt she was supposed to do that, but, I mean, it sort of fits into the same kind of, I don't know, paradigm that you're talking about when it comes to sexuality in women. I think so. I think it's all interwoven. I, the example you gave, it sort of, at the same time, makes me laugh and makes me stunned <laughs> and makes me want to just cry out and say, hey, wait a second here. Um, and yes, I think that plays out again and again socially and plays out sexually. And I keep coming back to this problem of male fragility, male fear. I think in so many realms, and especially in the sexual realm, women are constrained in expressing themselves because they're worried about what the man's going to feel or think. You know, if we can get just a tiny bit graphic for a second, you know, in the in the sort of on the issue of orgasms, right? I mean, we all know women fake it. They, you know, kind of avoid the topic. And they certainly, I think, way, way, way too often, there's not a conversation of what feels good, what actually works. And I think the reason for that is often men just aren't really willing to listen. It's just too threatening. And again, it's one of those examples where by not listening, you know, men are costing themselves ultimately. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example, orgasms, because if you go and you, I mean, I went to boarding school. If you go into a, at night and listen to the girls talking when if you're a boarder at boarding school, they talk about, org they talk about everything, uh, and they're not afraid amongst themselves. But as you say, when it comes to men, there is that fragility, afraid you're going to hurt their feelings or afraid. I think men are ignorant about women's bodies, they tend to be, like in terms of how women's bodies function, how a woman, woman has an orgasm. Women are very much aware of how a man has an orgasm or an erection or whatever, right? But women, men sort of kind of, they, that's, in, in speaking to other women, I think that's been my, and I haven't done the research you've done, but I, I think that that's a, a huge issue of men's, fragility, as you say, and uh, their fear of sex, and even their fear of women's bodies and not performing. Yes, 
I think so. And, and on that note, on the sort of note of the physical and of, of bodies, it was, again, sort of funny but also staggering to me that uh, until very recently, scientists have managed to ignore the fact that the clitoris has extensions uh, right underneath the surface of the skin, you know, very uh, easy to stimulate that rival or even exceed the size of the penis. So we've always conceptualized the clitoris as this, you know, little diminutive little thing. Yeah. But, uh, but in fact, it's not at all. And yet, you know, despite the fact we've been having successful uh, dissections for centuries, anatomists have kind of ignored this reality. And it's just sort of symbolic. And the, the woman who really, um, the Australian uh, sexologist who really managed to call attention to this giant oversight, basically said, look, this is all about the fact that we've decided women's sexuality is about reproduction and male sexuality is about the erotic and about desire. And you can just hear in that the false division that we've created. And I think that another part of that is somehow women feel that they don't deserve it. There's a piece of that also, um, that they don't necessarily deserve to have an orgasm or if they, there's a piece so that they don't, um, they don't ask for it. They don't, you know, require it of the, the man that they're with, their partner or their boyfriend or their husband or whomever it is. Whereas men are much more demanding about their orgasms. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's funny to a certain degree, of course, 2,000 years of, of religious tradition has helped there. And I don't yes. mean to speak for a second against religion itself. Just there has been a tradition that's worked against women in that way. But science has conspired, too. And this idea that we began the conversation with that somehow evolution has programmed male sexuality to be really strong and women's to be weaker really gets in the way of women feeling empowered about sexual pleasure, about sexuality. And the interesting thing is to wonder, well, how did we, how did science get involved here? And I went back, looked at the original uh, academic papers that came out in the early 90s that put forward this theory. They're really based on some flimsy evidence and some circular reasoning. There is no reason to believe that women's sexuality is less urgent than men's, despite that theory that's known fancily as parental investment theory. And what science was telling me, what scientists were telling me over the past eight years is, no, look again, that the drive for women is just as strong. Well, what about the whole, and now we only have a few minutes left, I don't know if I should bring this up now, but I mean the whole virginity thing that women have had to, to really experience up until probably most recently. You know, you're supposed to be a virgin when you get married, which has to do with all the religious stuff. But, you know, that's kind of just shifted in the 60s and the 70s, that yes, you are allowed to have sex before you get married. You don't have to save yourself for a man. So that is all part of it. It's, it's sort of, isn't it part of that whole social structure that says you're not really a sexual being and you don't need to experiment and you don't need to express yourself and I mean so it's relatively a new social phenomenon that women are allowed to express themselves sexually with from with more than one partner yeah I think it is a relatively new phenomenon and then still a complex and sort of 
conflicted phenomenon. And and here's what I, I mean. And, and I should take this moment to say, you know, having a man write a book, What Do Women Want, can seem A, strange, and B, arrogant. And I hope, of course, that it's neither. I hope, you know, that what's in that book, What Do Women Want, or women's voices, and that this really does start an honest conversation. And that honest conversation, I think, would have to include this. We've come a ways, but we're still a society, even though we seem kind of sexually saturated almost and unrestrained, still a society of a double standard. So I have a 20-year-old daughter, and we live in a quite liberal Brooklyn neighborhood. But even here, she'll talk about the reality of slut-shaming, for lack of a better term. That is that, you know, young women go beyond, you know, X number of partners or boyfriends in their high school and college careers, their shame. And of course, we know there's no such thing as stud shaming. And it's a simple example, but I think maybe the simple examples are the good ones to just point out how starkly we still divide women's sexuality from men. We give one gender is allowed at sexuality and the other gender is kind of burdened with a a really ambivalent, at best, societal attitude. That is a perfect example, and I think that kind of, it does, it sums it up. And we have to say goodbye, because I could go on and on talking with you, but uh, your book is groundbreaking, and even though you're a man, I forgive you, because it took you eight years to write it and do the research, and I think it is groundbreaking, and uh, you can buy the book, online bookstores everywhere amazon.com and go to your website danielbergner.com more information yes absolutely and we'd love to hear from readers great great talking to you this morning new york times magazine writer daniel bergner what do women want adventures in the science of female desire i'm katherine zox your social worker with a microphone you've been listening to voiceamericavariety.com and world talk radio have a great week and we'll see you next wednesday We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.